Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, this, I have to admit, was a tough week in the jury's household. We sent Colby to college last week, and he's our first, as many of you know. And uh, for those of you parents that told me about this, I didn't believe you. I didn't believe it would be this hard. I, and so, you know, as we're leaving the campus, he, he goes to a school uh, just north of uh, Pittsburgh, and as we're leaving the campus, it's so funny, the things that go through your mind are like, did we teach him everything we were supposed to teach him? Kathleen's like, I didn't teach him how to fold clothes. I don't even know if he knows how to fold. Does he know how to make his bed? Because he didn't do it the 18 years he lived in our house. But anyways, uh, and so you have all these feelings going through. And it really is. It, 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 it's just amazing separation, new season. And, and I just feel really old now. I mean, what, can I get an amen? When you let your kids go away, you're like, whole new season, and you're like, wow, this is just all these feelings going through. And so what was really funny, we, we left him at dinner, and we were going to stay overnight at a hotel and then leave in the morning. So that was the last time we were going to see him. And we get this text while we were at dinner. He just finished dinner, and he goes, he texts his mom, and he goes, mom, how do you get spaghetti sauce out of a shirt? So my wife's like, oh, we got to go to Target now and buy him stain remover. And she just went crazy. And so we went back to his door, which we didn't see him. Got, got the stain out of his shirt, and, you know, mom just wanted to feel like a mom for one last time. And so the whole way back, five-hour trip, it was just uh, tears galore. So, uh-huh. that's a hard one. Now, by the time Lily gets up to college, we'll be just kicking her out the door. All right, we're ready. We're ready to be empty nesters. So, uh, so that's our week. How many of you, uh, when you were growing up, you always had this neighborhood kid that was the bully. And so you always had this one kid or one kid on the uh, playground at school that was kind of the, the, the schoolyard bully or the neighborhood bully. And they would get you into a headlock and they would make you say, remember the word? Uncle. Remember that? They'd hit you in the head and you'd say mercy or they'd get you in the headlock and they would make you say uncle. And I always wonder... What does that mean? What, what does it mean when... So I kind of looked up the word, and it, it, it kind of goes back to Roman times or even um, 19th century England, where they said that the, the, the word uh, comes from maybe an English joke about a bullied parrot being coaxed to address its owner's uncle. I don't know. I mean, that's, that's where the word, I guess, came from. And, but it does have connotations to... Uh, uh, dominating someone or uh, being stronger than someone. And as we've been going through the character of God, we're going to look at God's character about God being merciful and, 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 and full of grace. Now, is God the type of God that actually gets us into a headlock and, and makes us say mercy? Is, is that the type of God that we serve? A God that is, is, is just wanting for us just to mess up to, to get us to the point of our lives where we just feel like we, we have to give up and then we just say, okay, God, uncle, and I finally give up and I'll listen to what you're going to tell me to do. Is that the way God is? Is that, is that how we understand God? Well, as we've come to learn about the character of God, we understand that God is not that way. And as we've been looking at this summer series about the character of God, we learn something about the Lord and we learn that God is full of promises and that God wants the best for us, and that God created us, and that God hasn't forgotten about us, and that God, through his loving, infinite mercy, 
desires to work in our lives and have a personal relationship with us. God is not a God that's far away, that's, that's immune to our hurt and our pain and our situation. But in fact, God is a God that wants to desire and to be close to us and to know us intimately. We learn that God gives us these promises to assure us that ultimately he is in control even when my life or my world seems out of control. That God gives us these promises in his word. That God gives us his word to show us who he is. So that in our turbulent wor- world and, and all the things that happen in our world and the unforeseen things that we see in our world. That God is a constant God. That he never changes. That he's the same today, yesterday, and forever. That nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. How many of you know that we need something solid in our life because our world is so uncertain? And, and, and God is a person that we can turn to to know that he is certain, that he's never going to change. That through his son, Jesus Christ, he's made a way for us to come back to him, to have a right relationship with him. That no matter what we may go through in our lives, we know that God is constant. That he's a sure thing. And so I want to look at a couple passages about God's grace and about his mercy. And I believe this is one of the most amazing characteristics about God. And the Apostle Paul shares so much about God's grace and and how he experienced that grace in his life. And if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is the one that used to kill Christians. And the one that, that used to persecute the very ones that would follow Christ. And through this wonderful experience that he had on the road to Damascus, he changed and uh, God spoke to him. And through that, he started to serve Jesus Christ. And so Paul, the very person, understood about this grace and mercy that he did not deserve, that God bestowed upon him. And now the, the very people that, that he was persecuting, he's become one of them. And so Paul speaks from this heart of understanding, I understand God's grace. I understand God's mercy because I was the very person, the chief of all sinners, who least deserved God's grace. But he'd come to understand truly what God's grace was through his son Jesus. Let me just give you a couple of passages here. Uh, first, Romans 3, 23 and 24. Paul speaking here. He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if I were to end there, that would be pretty sad, wouldn't it? That would give us no hope. If I were to end there and say, You are all sinners and you've fallen short of the glory of God. Let's pray. Go home and have a wonderful Sunday, right? That, that would not be very fun. But listen to what Paul says. He says, And all are justified freely by his grace and through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. He says, we've been forgiven through God's grace. Ephesians 1, 7. He goes on to say, once again, in him we have redemption through his blood, through Jesus' sacrifice. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace grace. And I love this passage of scripture that's in Ephesians chapter 2 because I believe it truly captures the essence of God's mercy and grace. Listen to how Paul, I want you to get a a grip and understand of Paul's heart here, how he understands the, 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 the depth of God's love and in in how deep his grace is towards him and towards us when we least deserved it. Listen to what he says. And, and he explains how we were before we came to Christ and how we are after. He says this, and he, he just he calls it what it is. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins 
which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, glorifying the cravings of the flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So he says, we were all sinners. We're all following our own ways. We're all following our own desires, our own cravings, satisfying our own flesh. And we were objects of God's wrath. We deserve death. We deserve to be judged by God. But then here comes the hope. But because of, the, because of his great love towards us, so there is nothing in me that, that could ever change God because I was a sinner. I didn't reach out to God first. But God, because of his great love, reached out to us. And so he is rich in mercy. And what does God do? He makes us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins, our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. In order that in the coming age we might show the uh, incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness of us in Christ Jesus. And I love what Paul says here. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So let me start this morning by allowing us to get a correct understanding of God's grace and mercy. So, so what, what Paul is clearly emphasizing in these passages, it's by God's grace that you have been made right before God. Not by your works, not, not by anything that you've done in your life. God makes us right. He makes us righteous through his grace and our faith in Christ Jesus. So here's what Paul is emphasizing. Here's, a, here's probably the best definition I give you of grace and mercy. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Those are probably the two best definitions I can give you right there. Grace is getting what you don't deserve, and mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Now, grace is not getting what you don't deserve. Let me explain it this way. This would be the same as awarding your child with Dairy Queen when they come home and show you that they got an F on their report card. And you would say, okay, let's go to Dairy Queen, and you can get a blizzard right i was going to say mcflurry that's mcdonald's i mean you can go and we're going to now wait a minute they don't deserve this ice cream because they got an f so they don't deserve so grace would say is that we get this free gift of salvation and here's the thing we all got an f in life in our spiritual life we all failed spiritually and we all got an f we, we are sinners that deserve much worse. Can I just say that? We deserve much worse. But God, through his grace, gives us his son, Jesus, who took the punishment for us. Now, mercy is not getting what you do deserve, which all of us deserve death and punishment because we've all fallen short of God. 
None of us here are righteous in our own ways. We need a savior. And and there's two stories that I love that are in the Bible that emphasize God's mercy. One of them is in the Old Testament. It's probably one of my favorite stories of mercy in the Old Testament. And one of them is in the New Testament. And you probably hadn't heard, maybe you have, but you probably haven't heard of the one in the Old Testament. It's a small little story that's tucked away in Second Samuel that just shows the mercy of God. And it's about a story of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, let's all say that together, Mephibosheth. Yeah, Ruth, you couldn't do it. No, I'm just teasing. Ruth, you said it good. Mephibosheth, what's interesting about this guy is that he is the grandson of the first king of Israel, Saul. And he is the son of Jonathan, who was very, very close and best friends with King David, who slewed Goliath. And what happens in this story is that Saul becomes very jealous of David. Because God now anoints David to be the king of Israel because David had a heart after God and Saul became very evil and God took his hands off of him. And so Saul pursued David and wanted him killed. At every corner, David is running away. And as you read many of the Psalms, some of these are written within that context of David fleeing for his life from Saul. Well, Saul has his son, Jonathan, and Jonathan becomes best friends with David. In fact, Jonathan saves David at many times from his father and from his anger and from his evil thoughts and from him wanting to kill him. Well, Jonathan eventually dies. And, but, but, but before that, Jonathan has this son, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, when he's very young, is dropped by a nurse and becomes crippled in both legs. And so Mephibosheth basically lives the rest of his life dependent on other people. Not only that, but Mephibosheth lives under the demise of his father in his evil acts. Now, here's what happens. Now, if you understand anything about those times, is that if if there was another ruling king that would come, what they would tend to do is kill the rest of the family. So there'd be no more heirs, no one that would come against the new reign and the new heir of king. And so Mephibosheth basically is helpless. Um, he's helpless both physically. Um, he's ha- helpless. He has, to, he has to depend on other people to help him. And not only that, he lives under the demise of his father's history and his evilness and, and even fearful of his very life. So what happens is there's a story of you can turn there if you want to. It's not in your notes, but you can turn there. Second Samuel chapter 9 talks about this story of Mephibosheth. And, and what happens here is David begins to call on those who were part of Saul's household. Now, they're thinking that David's going to call them to kill them. So here's Mephibosheth. He's thinking, oh, no, David, or, David has called me. This isn't a good thing. So I want to pick up the story here. And I want, to, want you to look at verses 1. And so David asked this question in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. He said, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness or mercy for Jonathan's sake? Because of the goodness of Jonathan's heart. So now... David is going to show kindness. Now drop down to verse 6 and 7. Now here comes Mephibosheth because one of the servants says, well, there is one. There's, there's this son of um, Jonathan 
who who is crippled in both legs and there is one as he is he is still alive and so Mephibosheth is brought to David and so verse 6 says when Mephibosheth son of Jonathan the son of Saul came to David he bowed down and paid him honor and David said Mephibosheth exclamation point and listen to how Mephibosheth responds to him he says your servant he replied and he said, don't be afraid. Now, why was he afraid? He was afraid because he thought he was going to die. David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Now, that's mercy. Mephibosheth didn't deserve it because of his, because his grandfather. And he knew it. And he knew it. In those times, he didn't deserve it. But what David does is shows him mercy and kindness. Now, now he, he, here's the thing I want you to think. See, not only does he show him mercy and kindness, but he does something that goes a step further. He restores back to him all the brokenness in his life. All the sadness that he must have felt in his life. All the things that he didn't feel like he deserved in his life. Maybe he felt like his injury was, was a direct result of God's judgment on him because of his grandfather Saul. David was representative of God's mercy of restoring those things that Mephibosheth felt like he didn't deserve. Amen. Isn't that good? This is good. Okay, it's going to even get better. Okay, let's look at the second story in Mark chapter 10. This is about a blind man named Bartimaeus. And this is a really neat story about mercy again. Look at verse 46 here. Mark chapter 10, verse 46. I love hearing Bible pages turn because you can't hear that on your smartphone, right? They should make an app where it sounds like you're turning pages, right? So it's that, that's good ears to a pastor. Okay, so let's look at Mark chapter 10 and let's look at verse 46 here's a blind man who is just a beggar and he's hearing jesus coming around and, and he knows that he's coming and so listen to what happens here this blind man bartimaeus who receives the sight verse 46 it says then they came to jericho as jesus and his disciples came with a large crowd they were leaving the city and a blind man bartimaeus that is son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging and when he heard that jesus of nazareth he began to shout Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. And he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and called him. And so, and so they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Well, duh. What do you, th you know, he's blind, of course. But, but Jesus asked him, what do you want? What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. And so Jesus said, go. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Is that for many during those times... If you were blind or you had something wrong with you, it, what, what many would say, it's because of God's judgment against you. 
And so here, blind Bartimaeus is thinking, maybe this is God's judgment. Everybody else is judging me. Everybody else is telling me to keep quiet. He's completely helpless. He's, he's um, dependent on everybody else. Um, he, he has nothing else to lose. And what does he yell out to Jesus? Well, he yells out to Jesus, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. And Jesus hears him. And Jesus reaches out to him. And what's interesting about Jesus healing him of his blindness is that it wasn't because of God's judgment that he was blind. And what God shows us there is that it's through his mercy and his grace that he heals this man who falls completely on Christ. Both of these here, Mephibosheth and Bartimaeus, are helpless and in many respects, what people would think not deserving of God's mercy, but yet God uses this to show his mercy. So, so let's get something true and let's understand God's grace and let's understand what, what Paul is saying about God's grace. And what he's saying here is he's saying that every single one of us were dead in the trespass of our sin. And then what Paul says, God does something for us that we can't do for ourselves. In Christ Jesus, he makes us alive with God. No longer dead in our trans, tra, transgressions. No longer objects of God's wrath. But he makes us alive through Christ Jesus. So what does this mean? Well, what Paul is saying is that we were spiritually dead. We were objects of God's wrath. The bottom line is that we were completely helpless there's not enough church attendance, not enough Bible reading, not enough good works that I could ever do in my life to ever reach God's standard of holiness. And when I try in my own strength to try to be good, how many know the next day I do something bad? Right? And I know some of you think, man, you know, man, this, this is a great day. And so far I haven't yelled at anybody and I haven't done anything wrong and blah, 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 right? And then you get out of bed and you have to start the day, right? And then you got to deal with people all day, right? So th that's, it's just, we're going to make mistakes all the time. We just are. So if I'm trying to be good in my own strength, I'm going to fail miserably. And that's why a lot of people don't like following Jesus or become Christians because they're like, it's too hard. I make too many mistakes. And God's saying, stop trying to do it in your own strength. That's why I sent Jesus to do it for you to become your righteousness for you and so what paul is saying here is we have to get to the point to where we feel helpless and um you know many of us we get to a point in our life where maybe we feel helpless and we didn't know what to do and um spiritually that is what we are before christ and without christ my helplessness when i realize that i get to the point where i'm helpless and i can't do it in my own strength and no matter how hard I try and how hard I try, I fail miserably. Until I, until I get to that point of my helplessness, I never see the need that I have for Christ. And maybe, maybe coming to a situation or, or something that happens in your life gets you to that point of helplessness. And that's okay. Because how many know life beats you up? And there's going to be things that happen in our life that we're not going to understand and why they happen. And they beat us up. And then it gets to that point of helplessness where we say that we need God and that's okay. So here's how God responds to us in our helplessness. He just doesn't kick us again and, see, and say, see, I told you, you big mess up, you big screw up. I told you and points his finger at us. Is that what God does? 
Does he take the ruler and slap us on the hand again and say, see, I told you, bad, bad, bad. Is that what he does? No. What he does is he changes our situation. What God does is he comes to the point of our helplessness and helps us and says, good, here's where my mercy and my grace are going to be so great in your life because I'm going to show you how much I love you, even in the midst of your helplessness. Like, can I just say this? God does not help those who help themselves. That is not in the Bible. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you thought, boy, I thought that was in the Bible. Wasn't that in the Bible? You're looking at, wasn't that in the Bible? I thought, no, God does not help them that help themselves. Let's be honest. Many of us thought that was in the Bible. God helps those who are completely and utterly helpless. That's who he helps. Think of Mephibosheth, completely, utterly helpless, bows down before David, thinks he's going to die, but his whole situation changes. Blind Bartimaeus thought he was going to be in that same situation, probably that same street corner, day after day after day. And people probably judge him and said, see, that's your life. You're being judged by God. Just enjoy the rest of your life. But not when Jesus came walking by. What did, what did Bartimaeus say? Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus says, it's your faith. It's your faith in me. Not your background. Not maybe the mistakes that you've made in your life. It's your faith in me that has made you see today. That has caused you to follow me today. So what, what Paul does is Paul contrasts what we were before Christ and after Christ. Paul tells us that it's through God's mercy and grace while we were helpless with no hope that he makes us alive in Christ. There is nothing we did to earn or merit or deserve his mercy or his grace. It all flows out of his love, Paul says. Now, does this mean that God overlooks our sin and just says that's okay? Not so fast. It's God's grace that is free, but that doesn't mean it gives me the liberty to live the way I want. Not at all. It actually cost God something. God's grace cost him something for you and I. Even though it's free for you and I, and it's a gift that God gives us, Paul says, but it cost God something and it cost him his son. God's grace is not cheap. It cost him the life of his very son. I love um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was just a follower of Jesus who died during the Holocaust in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer watched under the Hitler regime, the churches of Germany cave to his philosophies and to his ideas. And in response to that, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, wrote The Cost of Discipleship. And Bonhoeffer, his heart was this that he never wanted the church to forget how seriously God takes sin. And, and, and the only way he could save us from our sins was to offer his son as the solution. And that my service to Jesus is nothing in comparison to the price he had to pay to rescue us. And so what Bonhoeffer's point, his point was this. If our lives remained unchanged by the grace God offers us, the fact is, we really never understood the cost of that grace. So if I say, you I understand God's grace, but it never changes my life, I don't understand the cost that it cost God to offer us that grace to you and I. Does that make sense? So, so we end up, what happens is, if we don't understand the cost of God's grace by sending his son for us, 
and we're not grateful for that, that it literally changes our lives, what happens is we end up falling into a religious form of godliness with no real power. We just become cultural Christians and we just go through the motions, but it really doesn't change us internally. It really doesn't change us internally. I, I was listening to a podcast by Ravi Zacharias, he's a great apologist. And uh, if you can ever get any books by Ravi Zacharias, I would recommend you reading anything by him. He's an amazing, amazing author and speaker. But he said this, and this, as I'm jogging, I'm listening, I'm like, whoa, that was really bothered me. He says, I'm not worried about the atheists that don't believe in God. Because I'm not really worried about that. That, that bothers me, but, but this bothers me more. What bothers me more is the Christians that say they believe in God and it doesn't change their lives. That bothers me. He goes, that's what bothers me. He goes, it's not the atheists that don't believe in God. It's the Christians that say they do believe in God, but yet it doesn't change their life. And this is what um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about cheap grace. And this is one of my favorite quotes. I've quoted this many times, but I love this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, cheap, cheap grace is this. It's grace that we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. See, understanding God's grace will not allow us to live a selfish life any longer. Because we understand the lengths to which God went to to save us by his grace. You see, grace is free to me. I didn't earn it. I didn't merit it. I didn't deserve it. Yet it cost God everything. Pastor Tim Keller in his book, The Prodigal God, shares a wonderful story of a woman who discovered the wonderful truth of God's grace. I love this little, little nugget of, of how this woman discovered the truth of God's grace. This woman uh, grew up in a church that taught that God accepts us only if we uh, are sufficiently good and ethical. Kind of like a moralistic type of Christianity. You got, got all your do's and you got all your don'ts and you got to follow all these things. And if you do, good. If you don't, you're bad. And you got to follow these things. And that's kind of the church that she was brought up in. She never heard that we are accepted by, by sheer grace through the work of Christ, regardless of anything we do or have done. Now, this is what she said. She goes, that thought is very, a very scary idea to me. It's a good scary, but it's still scary. And, and so the question was posed to her, what's so scary about unmerited free grace? And this is, what, this is what her reply was. She said, if I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I deserve a certain quality of life. How many of us thought that way? God, I've done this. I've been good. I've done this. Blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, something bad happened in your life and say, what? I'm raising my hand because I felt that way before. God, I've done all these things. Why did this bad thing happen? Wait a minute. Wait a minute, God. We got a deal here. If I'm good and I follow you, then good things happen in my life, Right? Survey says, eh. 
See, that's a moralistic way of looking at your relationship with Christ. And that becomes very frustrating to many followers of Christ because we have this expectation that if I'm a follower of Christ, everything good has to happen in my life. How many, know you've been li- how many of you that have been living your Christian walk long enough know that that's not true, right? That doesn't mean that God doesn't bless us, that he doesn't give us his peace. That doesn't mean that everything's going to go perfect in my life. But this is what she goes on to say. She goes, if I've done my duty, now I deserve a certain quality of life. But she goes, but if this is really true, that I am a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. You see, what she understood was that God's grace has two edges on it. On one hand, it cuts away this slavish fear. God loves us freely despite our flaws and our failures. Yet on the other hand, she also knew that if Jesus really, what he really had done for her and, and, and all that he went through for her, she understood that she was not her own, that she was bought with a price. Randy Elkhorn makes this statement. Christ took the hell he didn't deserve so we could have the heaven we don't deserve. That's God's mercy and his grace. Now, I want to finish with this. I'm going to have Katie just slip up to the piano, but let, let me finish with this, and let me just wrap this, this up for you, because here's, here's where I want us to grab onto the grace and mercy of God. Um, we've, got, we've got two camps of people here today that we kind of fall into. So let, let me fall in. Let, let's fall into two camps here. We've got the camp that says, I'm never good enough. Um, I've made a, too many mistakes in my life. How can God accept me? If you just, if you saw my past, not even saw my past pastor, if you just saw my last week, how could God accept me? And I'm here to tell you he does. Through his mercy and grace, there's nothing you can do to merit his grace. And he loves you today. And he wants you to come to him. In spite of all your failures and shortcomings, he says, come. He says, come. And then we've got another group of people that um, are, are, are trying to gain access to God through what they do. You know, you know, the good works, you, you know, God, I, I've got to do this. I got to do that. I, I got to do this. I got to do that. And, and it's this constant drive to do good, to do better, to blah, blah, blah. And then when you fail, you start all over again. And it's this vicious cycle of, of goodness and failure, goodness and failure, goodness and failure, goodness, blah, 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 trying to gain access to God. And Jesus says, stop trying to gain my love and acceptance through your works. I love you irregardless. See, I want to be like this woman that understands that this unmerited free grace was given to me so that allows me now to free God, not out of the sense of duty or being a slave, but now when I wake up in the morning, I want to read God's word because you know what? I know he already loves me. And he already knows that I'm going to do some knuckle brain thing during the day. He already knows in the future. He knows I'm going to make a mistake. 
He knows I'm going to think something that I shouldn't think. He knows I'm going to say something to somebody that I shouldn't say or think about something about somebody that I shouldn't think, right? He knows that. And so when I wake up in the morning, I want to read his word. I want to know God. I want to pray because I know that he's already accepted me. And then through that, I can say to God, God, there's nothing that you cannot ask of me now because I'm not saved through my works. I'm saved through your wonderful grace. Now, let me just finish with this. Second Samuel 9.13 says this about Mephibosheth. Let me just finish with Mephibosheth because I just like saying Mephibosheth, okay? Here's what it says. I love this. Here's how I want you to see your life. Mephibosheth, lame, helpless, probably lived his whole life with regrets, coming to King David, thought he was going to lose his life, thought he was going to have to pay the sins of his grandfather, was paying for those. And here's what happens. Verse 13. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem and he always ate at the king's table. And he was crippled in both feet. Now, here's the picture I want you to get. When we come to the Lord, we literally limp to God. We're crippled as we limp to God and our brokenness and our hurt. But yet Jesus says, and you're, and you're, and your brokenness and with your crippled feet as you come to me, what I not only do is not only do I forgive you and show you my mercy and my grace, but then God even turns it into favor where he gives us something. It wasn't that, that David just forgave Mephibosheth and just said, okay, you know, I forgive you. Don't worry about it anymore. Go, go enjoy your life. He says, no, I'm going to do something even more for you. I'm going I'm to allow you to sit at my table, which was a place of honor to be able to sit at the king's table. And so what God does for you and I, as we come limping to him, as we come crawling to him, he says, I'm not going to leave you there, even though you're crippled, even though you're still carrying all that baggage from your past, I'm going to allow you to sit at my table. And so God blesses you by putting you at a seat of honor with him. Even as we are crippled, even as we are broken, God says, I see your brokenness. I know it's there, but guess what? There's still a place for you. There's still a place for you in my kingdom. There was a place for Mephibosheth in David's kingdom, even in his brokenness. And so my question for you this morning is, where are you? And what I would tell you this morning is limp to Jesus this morning and give him your brokenness and allow his mercy and his grace to flood your life today. When you come humbly before the Lord, God is not going to stiff arm you. He's going to open his arms to you. And not only is he going to receive you and not only is he going to forgive you, he goes, I got a seat right here for you and I've been waiting for you and I'm going to put you right here. It's a great glimpse 
of that marriage supper of the Lamb that we're going to see when we get to heaven. And there's going to be a big banquet in heaven when we all get to heaven. And we get to sit at the banquet table with Jesus Christ. He takes it so much further for you and I. Not only forgiving us, but turning it into favor for you and I. So let me just say this to you today. You're blessed. You're blessed today because of his grace and his mercy.